Hello and welcome once again to Wellbeing. A few weeks ago I had in the studio as my guest Dr Paul Craven from the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at the John Hunter Children's Hospital in Newcastle. As a result of hearing so much about that unit, it has prompted me to invite another of the specialist doctors from that hospital. And it is with great pleasure that I welcome Dr Robert Smith, paediatric neurologist. Rob, thanks for coming in and giving us your time. Let's start with a little of your background. What brought you into the field of neurology or paediatric neurology and how long have you been there? Well, there's a long version and there's a short version. <laughs> We've got half an hour. <laughs> I, I trained in medicine. Uh, I came, in fact, I emigrated to Australia in 1983 as a general practitioner. My plan was to go into rural general practice, but along the way I acquired some anaesthetic experience. And then in between jobs, a friend of mine said, we need some help in the neonatal intensive care unit. You have anaesthetics. Uh, would you like to do what's called a locum for a few weeks? And I enjoyed working with children, although it's a slightly different thing from general paediatrics. And at the end of that time, they said, look, we have a space on our training program. Have you ever considered paediatrics? And it was as accidental as that. You're obviously quite happy with the fact that it happened and the way you're going. Yes, mm -hmm. I, I am. At the moment, I couldn't imagine uh, a more enjoyable occupation. I, mm -hmm. I love paediatric neurology, which is a subspeciality of, of paediatrics, and which developed after that, really. Mm. You mentioned um, before we came on air about you training other doctors. Where does that fit into your overall working practice? I suppose I do that in two different ways. As a specialist paediatrician, all of us have a responsibility to train the junior doctors mm. who work with us. And these can be people who are spending time in paediatrics just for brief experience as part of a general training, for example, for general practice. Or they may be people who are spending time in paediatrics with a view to treating this, uh, their specialty. Yeah. yeah. So in the course of your training, do you train them in situ sort of on the wards and in the clinics and things? Or do you also take them into the university setup where there are lectures and those sorts of things? There is definitely a bit of both. Most of my postgraduate teaching is done in the clinics and on the ward mm. with my junior colleagues. I'm also employed by the university as a senior lecturer, so happily I do quite a lot of teaching with the undergraduates mm. as well. And again, quite a lot of that's on the clinic in the clinic and on the wards, but also more formal tutorial-type teaching as well, which I also enjoy. So you've got a busy schedule all the way around. Yes. You obviously enjoy it and see I by do. the look on your face. <laughs> How many people would work with you in your unit? So if we're talking about specifically paediatric neurology, mm. We're, mm. we're part of um, a much larger paediatric department. But at the moment we have two specialist neurologists. My senior colleague is Ian Wilkinson. Uh, we have a very senior trainee uh, known as a fellow, and this is somebody who's a paediatrician trained in neurology and is going to become a paediatric neurologist. Mm. We also have another junior doctor working with us. And the fifth and probably increase, most increasing, how can I say this, increasingly important member of the team is a clinical nurse consultant, so an experienced member of the paediatric nursing staff who's developed a special interest in neurology. What's the youngest child you've worked with in the course of your practice as a neurologist? Well, I could say I've been invited to pass an opinion on a child who was still in the womb. As so young as that? <laughs> occasionally, uh, 
for example, somebody might find something on an ultrasound mm -hmm. that may involve the brain, uh, and I guess on a couple of occasions my opinion has been asked. That's very rare. Quite regularly, though, I would see uh, premature babies, so babies usually born after 24, 25 weeks of pregnancy. I would say every couple of weeks we, we might see a baby up in the nursery. It's very wide-ranging from the, as you say, the very tiny ones through until, what, 18? Do they stay with you? Yes. Mm. At, um, at the moment, while, while you're still at school or under the age of 18, you will stay with the paediatricians. Yeah. So if you've got a, a really young child, what sort of things would A, show, and what would you be looking for with a child who would need your services? It varies considerably. Uh, if we start, if you like, with the neonatal nursery, now those the neonatologists manage most things incredibly competently, so we're nearly always invited to see a baby up there to, to bless a treatment plan that they've already <laughs> d d designed. <laughs> Uh, but obviously to provide uh, specialist support and opinion on occasions, I'd say probably two things. One is uh, babies who have what's known as birth asphyxia or starved of oxygen mm. around the time of delivery for a whole variety of reasons. Maybe they got stuck, maybe there's been a large bleed or something like this. Mm. And although many of those babies actually do very well in the long run, in the first few days they often have a lot of seizures. And sometimes that's a very difficult thing to control. And that would be a fairly common reason our help would be uh, desired. I guess the other, uh, other circumstance would be babies for whom there's been no concern during the pregnancy, but after they're born, they don't behave in the way that you would normally expect. For example, they might be too floppy uh, or occasionally too stiff, um, not feeling as well as they should. And often the question then is asked of us, could this be related to a brain or a nerve problem? How do you actually go about diagnosing? Do you look at the, as you say, that the fact that they're a bit floppy or a bit rigid, is that how you go about your diagnosis? Because they can't tell you how they're feeling. In medicine, it's always said that 95% of your diagnosis will come with the story or the history mm. and only about 5% with, with the examination. And that's often... It's often still the case, even in very young babies. So one of the most important things is to go back to the history. Ask the mother how that baby felt inside the womb. Did that baby kick well? Did that baby have a lot of uh, unusual movements? Was there a period after which the baby didn't move very well? Mothers, and particularly experienced mothers, are, can give you the most uh, incredibly precise information about their babies. Uh, they've known those babies inside their womb for often seven to nine months. Mm. And so history is where you start. Examination is a very important part of this. And then usually when you've got some idea of what you're thinking about, you may move on to investigation at that point. So it's not really trial and error, but simply listening and learning? Yes, I... I've had a lot of training, we all have, to get to, mm. get to where we are. Mm. So you use the benefit of all that knowledge and other people's wisdom that you've accrued over that time. And all of that, all of that helps you. Uh, you don't always know exactly what's going on. And sometimes an educated, people talk about educated guesses. Yes. You're listening to Wellbeing, and my guest today is Dr. Rob Smith from the John Hunter Children's Hospital. Rob, we've touched briefly on some of the conditions, like a floppy baby or one with seizures and, and those sorts of things. How would you pick up something like 
cerebral palsy. Does that show up at birth or because that's all related to the nervous system, isn't it? It is. And before I answer that question, I probably should point out that cerebral palsy means so many different things to so many different people. Really, what it, it's, an, it's an old expression. It's been with us, uh, I think, for about 100, must be 100 years now. The implication is that a child doesn't, there's some problem with movement uh, in a child, and the cause is to be found in the cerebrum or the brain. And it's a very interesting question, the one that you've just asked, because a lot of children with cerebral palsy will not come to medical attention until they're, they're a little bit older. So, for example, some children you may not have a clue until they're reaching an age where they can do more complicated things like sit or crawl mm. or walk and they fail to meet those milestones or they, they're rather asymmetrical in the way that they do something. And this is often the clue for parents or other members of the family and that's often mm. a time. Occasionally, it comes from surveillance. We see a child who's, for example, started life very di in a difficult mm. way. This is this is not the most common reason, but we will follow them carefully, and almost anticipate that there may be difficulties in that circumstance. What actually happens is that the the message doesn't get to the brain to direct the limbs. What actually happens in those sorts of cases? There are several different patterns of cerebral palsy, but the most important underlying problem is that the part of the brain, for example, that controls the legs. Mm has been damaged and it doesn't send the messages to the legs in the way that it should. So maybe those legs don't move as well as they should and in addition the normal messages that would control tone in the limbs mm. may be abnormal. So for example those limbs may be stiff, that is the muscles have spasticity or sometimes they're floppy. I guess that overall that if a child has this problem they're going to be stuck with it for, for life in general. So do you start some sort of training when they're tiny or do you wait until they develop a bit more? You know, what do you, how do you set it in motion, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, hopefully we take every child at their level of need. Uh, but as you appreciate, children present, some present early, some present later. The, the important thing is to assess the severity. Some forms of cerebral palsy uh, are extremely severe and will rob a child's of all possibility of independent living, mm. where some are very mild and, in fact, as a child grows older, will probably not even be noticed. So as soon as a diagnosis is made, the critical thing is to sit down and answer the questions with the parents and mm. other family members. And this is where I think knowing what their values are for their child is an extremely important thing. It's a very important part of medicine, essential part of mm. paediatrics. Mm. But we need to know from them what plan they have for their child's life and our job is to try and make that happen as far as possible. Do you in, get much in the way of denial from parents in the early days? We all cope in different ways. And all parents will go through a process of grief. Mm. And for some it may be the angry bit that they get stuck on. For others it may be denial. I think many parents would describe to me occasions when it seems like every day a doctor or a member of the health profession is coming in and giving them another bit of bad news. <laughs> and, and I yeah. I think myself, denial would help me cope with that. Yeah. So when a parent has got to the stage, they've been told that there is something fairly major problem with their child. Do they have special counselling at that stage 
or do you simply involve them in the treatment? How do you go about mixing parent and child within that treatment? Uh, again, everybody is different. So a whole variety of things may be offered. And parents, according to their needs or wants, may accept some things and not others. There are systems for early intervention, mm -hmm. and these can occur at a very early age. Some of these programs uh, include visits to the home by members of the allied health, such as occupational therapists, physiotherapists, speech pathologists. Some of them involve family visits to a, a designated unit, a preschool, mm -hmm. and there is a system for integration into the school system uh, around the age of five. Mm -hmm. There is a lot out there. Parents may choose not to use use some of that or not, mm. not to use it. There are geographical difficulties for some parents. Uh, it's true enough the closer you live to a big centre, uh, the more choice you may have. Although having said that, the other aspect of that is people who live in the country often have uh, tremendous experience and I find are multi-skilled. If a child has cerebral palsy, does it necessarily mean that they mentally don't develop as quickly or the intellectual brain works separately from the physical brain? I think that is an extremely important question because uh, you find that when, for most people, if you said cerebral palsy, they would have uh, an image of somebody with multiple disabilities, not just a physical disability. Cerebral palsy can be accompanied by quite severe intellectual difficulties, but in fact your intellect may not be affected at all. Mm. So there's the whole range. So it's very much an individual yes. type of thing. That, Absolutely. Uh, I guess cerebral palsy is one that is easily recognised by the person in the street because of the physical disabilities. What other conditions sort of sit into that pattern that would in inhibit a child from developing in the usual way. Is there anything else that... I mean, once upon a time we talked about a child being spastic. That's not a term we hear very much anymore. What's the difference between that and, and CP? Okay. I think that many of those terms were introduced at a time when, our, uh, when we understood cerebral palsy in a particular way. Mm. Unfortunately, society seems to adopt many of these things as rather pejorative things. Mm. Now, if... Mm. When when I was a small child, I used to visit my auntie, who used to collect for the spastic society. Mm, mm. Whereas now, if you call, you can call somebody a spastic, and this is regarded as a, a as a horrible thing to yeah. say to anybody. All spastic means it, it's it's a description of muscle stiffness, a particular mm. sort of muscle stiffness that comes because the control of tone from the brain isn't as good as it mm. should be. That's all it means. And those old terms do incorporate. Uh, all sorts of things that would now come under the umbrella of cerebral palsy yeah. in any case. It's interesting how society in general over the time changes its attitude and I guess the attitude has improved that if you see someone in general and it's usually children in wheelchairs when they're out shopping with parents, carers or whatever, once upon a time you either denied seeing them and turned your back on them or they were objects that Oh, they're a bit different from us. But to me, I see society now as accepting these these people much more so. Do you find that as, as part of the work that you do? I think it's a recurring theme for every mm. family. Mm. Uh, I don't think any society gets it right. 
don't mm. think any of us makes this perfect. And I think we all acknowledge that sometimes we do it well and sometimes we don't. We don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I have wonderful stories from families and I have rather harrowing stories from families. Mm. You know, discrimination and stigma are still out there and often it's about ignorance. I mean, mm. m- most many people who've had no experience of uh, communicating with somebody with a disability really don't know where to start. Mm. I think ignorance has a lot to do with that. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols, and I'm talking today to Dr. Rob Smith, who's a paediatric neurologist at the John Hunter Children's Hospital. Rob, we haven't covered anything like as much as I would like to have asked you, simply because we've, we're running out of time. But how does epilepsy fit in with, with caring for children? Because that's obviously a, a brain disorder, and neurology is to do with the brain. Where does epilepsy sit in amongst that? in children well it it sits in a big way there it's mm. it's most of my work i suppose uh these are children who have recurring seizures there are a whole variety of different epilepsies from very severe ones very hard to control but but thankfully the majority in fact are fairly straightforward fairly mm. easy to control and there's a good chance in the majority of children that they'll outgrow these as they get uh, as they get older how about the child who develops epilepsy as the result of having a brain injury? Yes, it, this can happen. Uh, for example, after a car accident or something like this, it's not as common as other varieties of epilepsy. And again, it probably depends on where the damage occurred, how severe the damage was. But many of those epilepsies aren't too difficult to keep under control. So are they controlled by medication or do they need to have surgical intervention? There are a whole variety of different things. Like anything, a child's lifestyle is very important when they have epilepsy, uh, even more so for adults. Uh, preventers in the form of medication are probably the mainstay of medical treatment. A very small number of children with very specific forms of epilepsy will benefit from surgery, uh, but this can be curative. So we've got a child who, let's stay on the theme of acquired brain injury as a result of of an accident Mm -hmm. what sort of conditions would would you patient is brought in and obviously not well possibly in a coma what do you look for to be able to establish for you the first signs that there is severe brain injury right i should point out that my involvement comes at the rehabilitation so early on the children will be managed by the general surgeons or the neurosurgeons and often spend time in intensive care unit, particularly if mm. they have a severe brain injury. There are definitely a few things that we look for to try and predict uh, severity of injury. Mm. Uh, one is, if you like, the level of coma experienced by that child at the time of injury. Another is the length of time that child takes before they can remember things that happen from one day to the next. This is known as post-traumatic amnesia. There are subsidiary things like patterns on um, brain images like MRIs and CT scans that may also help decide that. So if you've got a child that has moderate to severe damage, where do you start? What part of your job do you start to handle that child and, and what would you... 
what would you prescribe for him? Yes. Well, this is definitely not just me. This is a team <laughs> effort, uh, and we have a wonderful brain injury yeah. team locally. We would meet with a family. The child, usually at that stage, can't participate very much in mm. any discussion. The team would assess that child, so the whole team will meet them, and we meet regularly with the family and with the team, and we set up a rehabilitation plan for that child. That may or may not include medication. But the whole point is to get that child well enough to get them home mm-hmm. and eventually back back to their normal normal society. So yeah. school, usually that yeah. means. Yeah. So y- you often hear about children who are being retrained, and adults too. They've got to learn from day one how to talk, feed themselves, walk, all of those sorts of things. How do you start with something like that? Well... You you pay attention to the fundamentals, so you feed people, you look after them, you prevent, you, you have to do for them all the things that they cannot now do for themselves. Uh, and even feeding may be a real hurdle for some kids. So you've got to keep them going, you've got to keep them, keep them strong. Then you need to look very carefully at what they may have lost, but what they still have. And there is a thing called brain plasticity, so there is always hope that children can borrow from undamaged areas to make good Mm. the deficits they have from the damage. Mm. And we see this. And it is the job of the team then to work out how to help this child head back to where they were. You think about children, I guess, from the day they're born, they're learning all the time. They learn how to, to sit up, smile, feed themselves, talk, all of those sorts of things. And that goes over as a slow process over several years as the child develops. What sort of time frame would you expect for a child who, was, who had brain injury? You know, you've got all that training, years training, and you need to put it into a fairly short time. Well, I don't think anybody could answer that question. We used to say that by six months... Um, if you know better, well, you won't be any better. Mm. But this obviously isn't true. And there's no question that we see continued improvement going on for years after brain injury. Mm. The majority of the dramatic recovery will occur in the immediate period, uh, after you wake up from your coma, as it Mm. were, uh, and once you get home. But there is continued improvement for a long time after that. In all of that, you sort of mentioned the family and the the family involvement. That's not only mum and dad, but it can include brothers and sisters and and grandparents as well. So do you get them together and sort of say, well, look, you know, this has happened and this is what we need to do. As far as you kids are concerned, you know, go in and talk to him because he's just the same as as he always was, but a bit slower. Um, How do you sort of involve all the family into that training as well as the the specialists OTs and all the rest of it Yeah. at the very beginning most families are just in survival mode Mm. the worst thing they could ever imagine has happened to one of their children and they're not in a position to accept as much of this Okay, and they need that time to organise their life to work out how they feel about everything I don't think you could ever emphasise that enough but the family, many families, in fact, are very good from the start that, that everybody has a place and they don't feel awkward about coming back into the life of their sib mm, whatever. or whatever. Mm. But for some families, it's very difficult. And I think this is where the team really helps. So we have 
experienced social workers were involved, involved in the team, mm. members of our nursing, nursing staff. And in fact, the whole team can help. School visits, home visits, mm. supervised visits, so that people can learn to overcome their awkwardness and their fear, I think, so mm. often mm. that this is somebody who's changed so, may have changed so much. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're saying about fear. I know that sometimes, and I had this experience years ago, I was asked to mind a child who was subjected to severe epilepsy. And while he was a delightful child, I kept thinking, what the hell will I do if he has a seizure? How do you go about reassuring people? Well, you can't always reassure everybody. I think you, you, you find <laughs> you out what... You see where I'm coming from. Oh, though. no. You, mm. you, I, th- I think the important thing is that you give people the opportunity to ask the questions. Right. Or list the questions that other people have asked and ask if these might be things that concern yeah. them. I think it's important to have some understanding and also to have a plan. And so most of us spend most of our time educating these days. Mm. Uh, Our clinical nurse consultant, for example, will go and teach families how to manage, for example, a a severe seizure. Mm. We can teach first aid, but we can also look at very specific medications and options in case of a prolonged seizure, that the family can, uh, things that the family can use at home. Yeah. From all of this, I hear reassurance sits as a as a big thing in all the treatment and looking after these kids. That the parents or whoever are not on their own, and that there's always that backup. Is that the correct surmise? Yes, it's a team effort. It's oh. a team effort. You can't take a child out of their family. You know, fam- families and children are inseparable. Mm. I don't spend a lot of time with that family. They, uh, neither does the team, even mm. though it feels like it on occasions. You know, they're on their own for most of the time. So they need to feel comfortable, and most families do this. But it can take a long time. My guest today has been Dr. Rob Smith, paediatric neurologist at the John Hunter Children's Hospital in Newcastle. Rob, thanks for coming in and talking to me. For you, the listener, I hope you've enjoyed today's program. And from all of us on the team, we wish you well.